We asked some questions last week. Uh, what is a worldview? What are presuppositions? Does anyone remember uh, how, we, how Bonson is defining the idea of worldview? <laughs> You're combining some things from two weeks ago and then. They have them and we should do. Oh, man. Very good. A, a network of, of ideas that are from which you make your decisions. They're unchallenged. They're untested. Right. These are not things that we believe because we've run them through a grid of scientific testing. These are fundamental assumptions. Uh, and he even said last week, we're not just talking about any assumptions we make, we're talking about the fundamental assumptions that we live by, the things we assume when we wake up and get out of bed in the morning. Uh, and he even, he start, he's starting now to compare other worldviews with the Christian worldview and to point out just how much we all live on assumptions. Uh, there are worldviews that reject the notion of the existence of personal identity. You don't actually exist as, an, as a personal being, and yet... When they wake up, they do get out of bed and they assume that they're the person that they were yesterday and that their memories that they woke up with are real uh, and that they weren't just created five minutes ago with a set of memories that they think are years old. There's all sorts of assumptions that we all live with all the time. And it's at that very deep level that he's starting here. He's building us up in a foundation of understanding and then we're going to start to draw some conclusions and see uh, how this interacts with a defense of the faith, with a defense of the notion that the Christian worldview is the only worldview that comports with the way God has made us and made the world around us. Um, now, we, I, I, I think I prepared you well last week for that, you know, when he opened up the dry erase marker and went to the board. It got pretty heavy there for that time. Um, and then it eased off again at the end. Well, we're going to be, so this is the second half of that same video. He's finishing the same, uh, the same um, session. He is going to go back to the whiteboard again for this last bit. We're going to watch uh, roughly 25 minutes of, of video today, and then we will talk about it and break it down afterward. Um, but I'll just, I'll just tell you one more time here this morning, you need to prepare yourself and to stay with him. Don't let yourself get discouraged or distracted because he's going to get into a lot of worldview, uh, a lot of isms and things like that. Uh, but he's doing all of this. I hope you can see by now. He's, he, he's someone who does what he does for a reason. He uses these things to help us and to make points and to draw conclusions. He's not just trying to look uh, smart. So uh, be ready to be equipped with this further. And then we're going to, uh, to, to break these things down, summarize them and talk about some questions that stem out of what he's saying this morning. Um, I've asked David to start this a, a few minutes back so that we can get back into He ended our time last week going through some really specific examples that are really helpful. So we'll hear those again just by way of reminder uh, before we get into new material. So if you're sitting there going, I heard this before, I think. Well, you, you did. We, this is how we ended last week. So we'll go ahead and start the video. Things. Now let me real quickly run through a few examples for you just to show you that other worldviews outside of Christianity address these questions. Think about Hinduism for a minute, another world religion. Do Hindus have a particular view of origins that stands over against the Christian doctrine of creation? Well, they certainly do. 
In the first place, Hinduism teaches that nothing is genuinely new or real because there cannot be any change. All is one. And what we see in our illusory experience of change is really nothing more but the cycle of life, the wheel of life. And that is, though a very perverse and I think an absurd view of origins, it is the counterpart in Hinduism to the Christian doctrine of creation. Think about behaviorism. Behaviorism as a school of psychology tells us that human beings do not genuinely have freedom but are rather nothing more than sophisticated stimulus response mechanisms. Human beings do what they do because they've been stimulated and conditioned to respond in the way that they do. You all know the story of Pavlov's dogs, right? Pavlov had this experiment many years ago where he'd ring a bell right before he fed his hounds. And he found that after a while of stimulating and conditioning them in this way, that if he rang the bell, even though he didn't put food in front of them, they'd start salivating. And this, in a very um, crude and simple way, is the model that is used by behaviorists to understand all of human conduct. We are nothing more but stimulus response mechanisms, uh, glorified Pavlovian dogs, if you will. Now, does the behaviorist have a particular view of what's wrong with man? Well, he certainly does. He says he's not been conditioned properly. The reason why we have warfare and oppression and injustice all about us is because men have not been conditioned properly. That is, the ringing of the bell and the feeding of the food has not been put together in the right ways to make people act nice to make them act harmoniously and peacefully. And so the behaviorist has his own understanding of man's sinfulness and man's fall. Think about Marxism for a moment, which we hope to see less and less of in history, and maybe we have some reason to be encouraged um, in seeing communism struggle around the world these days. But for many years, it has been a very viable and a very popular philosophy. Does Marxism have a point of view that, that is the counterpart to Christian theology? Does the Marxist have a particular view of the consummation of all things, where history is going? Well, of course, the Marxist does. We believe that history is moving in the direction of a greater conflict between the city of God and the city of man. We see the kingdom of Jesus Christ coming to have ascendancy over all that which fights against it, as every enemy has made the footstool of Christ's feet. We see Christ returning in judgment to separate the sheep and goats, the wheat and the tares, and for all eternity then to confirm people's standing, either as living with God or being separated from him in hell. We have a certain view of consummation. We know where history is going. Does the Marxist think he knows where history is going? He certainly does, and that's why he sacrifices so much. That's why he's willing to become a member of the party and to give up his own freedoms and pleasures, because he believes that history is inexorably moving toward that consummation, and he wants to be part of that process. He wants to see revolution, overthrow oppressive and capitalist regimes. He wants to see the dictatorship of the proletariat and eventually the withering of the state. 
Think about existentialism for a moment. Is an existentialist someone who says that people are radically free, they have nothing that controls what they can be or what they are, and they define for themselves the meaning of their existence? Does the existentialist have a view that stands over against Christianity? Well, the existentialist clearly does. According to the existentialist, the nature of man is not to answer to God, not to answer to parents, not to answer to school teachers or professors or the state or anybody. Man answers to himself only. And when he fails to understand that, he doesn't have an authentic existence. He is alienated from himself. He is living in bad faith. And what he must do is assert his will and make a choice for himself without guidance from anybody else. He must recognize the absurdity of the universe and that he imposes meaning on his life and it's not given from God or from anything outside him. Now that sounds like a kind of theology, a very perverse theology, a very heretical theology, but nonetheless something that is like Christianity in answering questions about the nature of man and what's gone wrong with man and how man can save, be saved, in this case, save himself. Well, we could go on and on with illustrations, but at this point, my guess is you might be sitting there if you're not thinking about what it is to tamper with a smoke alarm in the airplane. You might be saying, how am I ever going to know about all these worldviews? I mean, Dr. Bronson, you've just kicked these out. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, there's no end to these sorts of things. I'll never be able to master this. Ah, well, maybe you can. I'm going to try to give you a scheme for doing so. I don't intend to mention every particular version of every worldview that's ever been promulgated in the history of man, but I do have what I think will prove a helpful diagram or map of the terrain so that you can kind of get an idea of what some of the major issues are and also become familiar with some of the vocabulary that you'll run into in college. And so I'm going to use the board again here and start laying out for you some of the major worldview options, if you will, that are out there that compete with Christianity. worldview that you should be aware of is what is called monism, and I put in parentheses spiritual here because technically materialism is a monistic view of the world as well. But here I'm thinking of monism in the spiritualistic sense. Perhaps the leading illustration of a monistic worldview is Hinduism. According to the Hindu, everything is one. Despite the appearances that there's a difference between you and the person sitting next to you and a difference between you and the chair and a difference between this building and another building and a difference between this part of the world and another part of the world all of that's illusion ultimately the final reality Brahman is one and within Brahman there are no distinctions and it should be your goal in life according to the Hindu 
to try to achieve that mindset of oneness through meditation. If you don't, well, then when you die, you're going to have to come back again and live your life until you finally learn your lesson. But eventually, if uh, you go through enough cycles of life, enough reincarnations, you will become enlightened, and upon death, you will, like the drop of water in the endless, shoreless ocean, completely lose yourself in the oneness of being. Spiritualistic monism. It's not a material one, it's an immaterial, or if you will, a spiritual one. Now, that kind of worldview is not simply found in Hinduism, but I would suggest that before you go to college, or if you're already in college, you pick up a book that has at least a chapter on Hinduism, maybe a whole book on it, and read it. I guarantee you it will be worth your while. If you do that, you'll be able to deal not simply with what is strictly called Hinduism, but you'll be able to deal with all of those which are Hindu-like religions, Hindu-like worldviews. The Hare Krishnas, for instance. Christian science, for instance. New Age theories, for instance. All of them are but variations on, I know they're insulted to hear this, but it's true, all of them are philosophically a kind of Hinduism, a kind of monistic, spiritual monistic view of the world. A second kind of worldview can be called dualism. If monism means all of reality is one kind of thing, what is dualism? It's going to be the view that reality is made up of two kinds of things, matter and mind flesh and spirit. And examples of dualistic worldviews would be first of all idealism. I think here particularly of the philosopher Plato, but whether people know the technical aspects of Plato's philosophy or not, there are many idealists who think that Beyond the physical realm of time and space, there are ideals or ideas that exist in and of themselves. Idealism holds that there is a, a realm known as time and space, but then there's something which is beyond time and space. Many idealists tend to be intuitionists when it comes to epistemology and ethics. Whoa, now that vocabulary is rolling in there pretty hard. Let's look at that sentence again. Tend to be intuitionist in terms of epistemology. Their theory of knowledge is we intuit the forms. We know certain things as rational concepts that are innate to us or intuitionist when it comes to ethical ideals. Ethics can't be justified. It's just something you intuit, they will say. These are forms of idealism. Another kind of dualism is found in what I call Stoicism and moralism. The ancient Stoics held that man lives for the sake of duty, for getting his life in connection with and in harmony with the way the universe is moving, the rationality of the universe. And it's an obligation for him to do it. 
to live with a stiff upper lip, to submit to the necessity of the universe as it is, and more generally, moralistic points of view that tell us that man is to live according to certain ideals or certain duties in this world, even though we recognize man is made of flesh and blood and lives in a physical surrounding, there's more to him than that, moralistic worldviews. Now we're going to get more complicated here. We have monism, dualism, A third basic worldview type is atomism. And here I mean atomism in the materialistic sense. The idea that reality is made up of matter that can be broken down into atoms, the smallest building blocks of the real. There are a lot of different varieties of atomism, more than I can mention tonight. You need to be aware that when Democritus and Epicurus of old maintained that reality is made up of an infinite number of atoms, they were not using the term atom in the way that we hear in the 20th century, say in the Bohr model of the atom. They didn't have any such concept as that whatsoever. The only reason I tell you that is because it's one of the most remarkable pieces of ignorance that I've run into that in physics classes people will say, well, this point of view on the universe is something that comes from the ancient Greeks. That's straining it a great deal. Atomism in the materialistic sense is the view that the material world is all there is, there ain't no more. There is no realm of ideals or values or forms beyond this world. There's no God beyond this world. And certainly, it's a denial of monism, the idea that reality is a spiritual one that runs through all things. The atomist says everything breaks down into little building blocks of matter. Now, within the atomistic or generally materialistic perspective on life, you're going to find a division having to do with whether there is any kind of freedom in this world or not. You have deterministic theories that are materialistic or atomistic. And then you have theories which are not deterministic, but I'm going to give a little bit more definition to that. That is theories that say man does have a free will that can be exercised in a particular way. And particularly man's free will is to be exercised in pursuing pleasure, what we call hedonism. Among the materialists or the atomists then, there are those who hold to the notion that man is not genuinely free. There is no genuine freedom in reality. Two examples you've already heard about tonight, behaviorism says that individual human beings do not have free will. They are Pavlovian dogs, white rats, stimulus response mechanisms, robots. There's no individual freedom. More broadly, Marxism is a deterministic, atomistic view of the world. Marxism says the only thing that's real is matter. That's why a definition of Marxism that's often given is uh, helpful when we say it is dialectical materialism. 
the idea that matter is evolving and developing in a dialectical way throughout history. Everything is matter, and the Marxist holds that all of history is deterministic. All of history is moving according to certain laws, the dialectic, and will have a um, predictable outcome just because of that. Those who are atomistic in their view of the world are materialistic, however, have not all always agreed on this question about freedom. There are those who hold to materialism and yet say man has a free will. Of course, was the view of Epicurus of old, who was perhaps the most modern man of the ancient Greek philosophers. Epicurus said the world is made up of an infinite number of atoms that are controlled in everything that they do, and yet man, who is made up of these atoms, should live for pleasure. Now, I hope that there are some budding philosophers out there who are awake enough to say, what? Wait a minute. If man is made up of matter, and therefore he is controlled just like weeds growing are controlled and natural forces are controlled by these laws of nature, then how does man choose anything at all? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Well, we can't dwell on that very long. Unbelievers don't make a whole lot of sense once you get into their philosophies, and hopefully you'll start taking that for granted. What I want you to see, though, is that this kind of unbeliever who is a materialist said that people make choices. They should live for pleasure, hedonism. I'm going to give you three forms of the free will version of materialism. First of all, egoism. Secondly, utilitarianism. Thirdly, existentialism. First of all, egoism. The egoist says we should live for pleasure, and he means by that individual pleasure. Live for yourself, whatever is good for you. You have a sophisticated version of this in the philosophies of uh, Ayn Rand and John Hospers and others who are libertarians. Egoistic pleasure. Or you could choose, if you believe that this is a material universe and there's nothing but matter and yet men are free, you could choose that we should live for the pleasure of the greatest good of the greatest number. Not individual pleasure, but the pleasure of the group. And that is the philosophy of utilitarianism. Utilitarianism says the way we live our lives should be governed by what makes the most number of people happy. And it comes to expression in the political and economic theories of socialism that tells us that basically man lives as a social creature and for the happiness of his society. And then finally, and this is straining a bit to put it under hedonism, but in the free will approach to the material universe that man lives in, the existentialist, as we mentioned a few moments ago, says man must exercise his free will to define for himself what he will be. He just exists as a material object, but then he freely gives himself an essence, freely gives himself a character, and determines the outcome of his own life. There's only one more, so don't, don't get too tired now. We're almost done. The map is almost complete. In addition to monistic, spiritual monistic theories of reality, knowledge, and behavior, dualistic, that is to say, idealistic or moralistic approaches to life, and atomistic, materialistic views, there are those people who say nobody can know for sure. So you have pragmatism and skepticism. 
You have those who say, there is no knowledge of ultimate reality available to man. The pragmatist says, therefore, we should live for solving problems. It makes no difference whether we have a theoretically adequate account of what we are doing. The only thing that counts is that we are able to adapt to our environment, solve our problems, and get ahead in life. The pragmatist eschews the traditional problems of philosophy, therefore, and says it's not important that we pursue those. We don't need to know about things like certainty. All we need to know is about utility, what works. The skeptic goes even beyond the pragmatist. The skeptic uh, says, we can't know anything at all. In fact, you'll find people in the university who make their living from the university and take a paycheck to be professors of that which man can know and what's best for him in the traditional sense, and yet they are skeptics. They don't believe that what they are doing in the university amounts to a hill of beans. And that's why you'll find a great deal of two other attitudes that are related to skepticism here, sophistic attitudes and cynical attitudes in the university. By sophism, uh, well, I'm referring to an ancient Greek school of thought that said that no one can know anything for sure, and therefore what you should do is master arguments to persuade people of your point of view. That isn't to say your point of view is true, it just means that since there isn't any truth, you might as well try to get as much as you can out of life. So master how to win arguments, from which we get the English colloquialism. A sophism means a trick of debate or argument that doesn't have genuine substance or reliability. There are plenty of sophists at the university, and they'll be found primarily in the law school. Those people who are taught to win arguments for the sake of money, regardless of justice and regardless of truth. The most important thing is that you are the hired gun for somebody and you've got to get what they want. Their acquittal or in some cases they, they're um, going after somebody else. Lawyers often will go from one side of a social issue to another from case to case, depending on who's paying the tab. They're nothing more but modern sophists. And you find that not just in the law schools, but you find it throughout the university. People say, well, no one really knows, so what you need to do is learn how to get ahead in life. And then, of course, there are those who are the cynics. Um, if I weren't a Christian, I think I'd be a cynic, to be very honest with you. I find it hard enough, even as a Christian, not to be a cynic. But the cynics, look at all of this and say, no one really knows. There are all these customs of the establishment and tradition, and it's just a bunch of hooey. No, there's really no basis for living a particular way or not living a particular way. And so why all this put on? The ancient cynics got their name from the Greek word for dog because they uh, advocated uh, copulating in the open, as dogs do. That's not because the cynics actually practiced that, by the way. It's because they were trying to offend their culture, as many in the hippie generation and others have done, tried to offend the establishment by saying, you don't have any standards that should govern us at all. It's almost like, let's get back to nature. 
You know, you, you have the Mother Earth approach here. The cynic who says establishment, mores, civilization is what corrupts. And uh, so what we can do is what is most natural for us. Well, that's it. I, I don't pretend that this is going to do the trick with every single point of view that you run across. But I do think that it will be very helpful for you if you write this down and before you go to college and maybe, you know, for a number of weeks into your courses, you keep thinking every day as you go to class, what kind of worldview am I getting here? A materialistic worldview? A pragmatist worldview? Am I getting an idealistic worldview? And then in addition to that, and then tomorrow when I speak to you, I'll pick up on this point. In addition to asking what kind of worldview, you should be asking yourself, what does Christianity say about that? What does my Christian theology say about these issues pertaining to creation and fall and redemption and consummation? How do these worldviews stack up against each other? And then eventually you're going to want to know how can we show that one is right and the other is wrong? And I hope to do that before we're done this conference as well. But that'll be it for this evening. Well, what in the world did any of that mean? Um, I apologize. I meant to put up here. Uh, is my slides coming back up? I meant to put up before we started the video what really is just the outline of those major isms and things that he was going to be talking about. I was going to do that to you before we even started so you could be a little bit more, more prepared. Um, every time we start these, we're reminded of a couple of things. We're reminded that these are, in a sense, old videos. You can see that when, he's, when they span to the, to the audience and you see hairstyles and such and the quality of the videos. Um, and we've, we've said it a couple of times. It's just remarkable to hear. I mean, he, he, is, he is giving them what they're going to need because of what they're going to be confronted with as they go to college. This is back in the early 90s. And we look around now and realize, goodness sakes, this is, um, he's describing the way that the entire society thinks now. This, this is permeated to every level of our, of our cultural situation. So someone remarked a few weeks ago, it seems like a lot of these things may be even more relevant for us now than they were back then because of how much things have, have, uh, have permeated um, I want to just briefly go through uh, and try to make more sense of some of the things that he had said here, explain some of these things again, and then focus this morning on um, where are the areas that we have seen uh, that we have seen these ideas win our society today. Which of these things seem to have really carried the day, uh, and 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 talk from from that emphasis. So um, let me change this here and put up. There, I've added a little, a little bit. You see, uh, what's in parentheses now is sort of a, a summary of a number of these things. And we'll just talk through this, uh, this list here quickly. Um, and I'm going to show my cards a little bit. You can object and bring up uh, thoughts if you like. I'm going to essentially uh, bypass monism and dualism and really focus on three down. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, because this is where, what I'm going to argue is I think that's where I see the victory having happened in our society, especially. So if we come down to number three, he called it atomism, but he said that's this really, he means materialism. I'm much more familiar with the word materialism than I am the word atomism. 
Um, but uh, the, the, the materialistic worldviews, all of these assume from the beginning that there is nothing real except for the physical world. Right? That was what was, what was different between uh, that and the first two. Um, everything is made up of matter. Matter can be broken down into, into atoms, um, and that's all that there is. Now, there's a couple of conclusions that he said we can draw from that, having to do with freedom. What did he say about, about freedom and some of what's coming after this? If everything is made up of matter and matter behaves according to physical laws, right? Yeah, atoms don't sit and think and decide to act this way. They just act according to the laws of, of the physical world, right? So if that's the case, and if everything is made up of matter and only matter, then that means that you're made up of matter and only matter, and all of your matter, just like the matter in the chair, is acting according to, to certain laws. It doesn't have any say in the matter. And therefore, even though you may think you're making decisions and choices, you're really not. You're just a cog in the machine. No, you're right. And I think we'll, we'll talk about a little bit of that here, but you're already making the point. Uh, we we, we got to be careful that we don't write off these things. Uh, you're exactly right. And I think, uh, well, let's see where we go and see if, uh, if there... No, no, I'm, gl I'm glad you bring that up. Um, underneath the materialistic worldview here, now we have these subdivisions. So the first one is the deterministic, what we were just describing. The conclusion is, well, then everything is determined. Uh, so there, there does not exist any real freedom in the, in the world. And so um, if, that, if I think that on a, an individual level, then I'm a behaviorist. Uh, our behavior is conditioned from factors outside of us. It's not a decision that I make. I'm essentially a robot. Behaviorism is, act, is operating on the individual level. If we take this idea to the, um, to the, uh, the, the level of human history, now we're talking about Marxism, as he called it, uh, or as it is called, I, I guess, dialectical materialism. Marxism isn't commenting on individual freedom. It's commenting on the flow of history that history is inevitably moving in a certain way, and, this is, and so we need, to, we need to get on board, see how the, how, how the rise of one way of governing, one way of living, has then uh, created excesses and had a reaction like this, and significant change, and then that worked for a while and had a reaction, and it brought this. This is the dialectical change, and history is doing this inevitably. Um, and this, it was on this basis that Marx and others foresaw things like the end of capitalism and, and things like this and the, the rise of, of, of the socialist state. Um, so th that's what he's talked about in those, in those two categories. The, there are materialists, he's saying, that do not, uh, do not operate in a deterministic way. They do see there to be uh, freedom and real choices that we make but they still would hold a worldview that says there's nothing more than the physical world. There's nothing else. There's no spiritual realm. There's no, there's no afterlife. There's no God. Uh, and yet, I make choices, and they matter. So on that assumption, how do I live? How do I make my choices? What are my priorities? And he essentially created two options here. You can either, under this worldview, decide that, well, really, what I should live for is the maximizing of my own personal pleasure, 
That would be uh, what he's meaning with this word egoism. Or you can say, no, what we should live for then is the maximization of the greatest good for the greatest people, the greatest number, the societal good. And that's the utilitarianism uh, element there. I'm excited to be done having to use all of these isms. The last one that you can't see, because it's on the floorboard here, is pragmatism and skepticism. We're familiar with those words. What, what did he say about the pragmatist and the skeptic? <laughs> That's right. Pragmatist, yeah. But the, the emphasis is it doesn't matter anyway. This isn't where we, we put our focus. Yeah. Yeah. Pursuing these things are not important. What matters is utility. What matters is, is what works. Um, I would like to give my view of some of the ways we've seen these things um, have consequences for us today. The ones that I, that I would see as having won the day in a very substantial way. They're already now, we're, we're, we're far enough along in history where some of these things are being shown to just simply not work. Um, but I was asking myself a couple of questions. Uh, which ones seem to dominate our culture today? And then here's, here's the real deal. If it dominates a culture, this worldview, what, what would be the results that we would expect to see in a culture as a result? So I'll share my thoughts with you, and then I'm anxious to hear if you agree and, and if there's things that you would add to this list as well. Um, but starting with uh, this here, behaviorism. If that, as a worldview, begins to grip an entire culture, what would be some of the consequences that we would see? And I, I, I think we could wrap them up in this one statement. I think we would begin to see a denial of personal accountability. If I'm a conditioned animal, then what's the reason for all of the crimes I might commit or all of the, the, thing, the mistakes I might make? Well, it's, a, it's an improper conditioning. It's not my fault, right? It's, it seems to me that is a pretty natural conclusion to, uh, to this worldview, this, this, this way of looking at, again, we're not just talking about individuals here. We're talking about what... That what reality is like. And I think that that's a, that's a consequence that will come out of that way of viewing reality. There's nothing but matter, therefore I'm nothing but matter, therefore I really have no, uh, well, you're not conditioning my matter correctly, and so it's not my fault. Um, if we come to that on a societal or a historical scale uh, of Marxism, and, we, and we, this is pretty easy to see just looking at the way that our uh, political situation can go often. Uh, if Marxism is, is embraced, and we know that Marxism as a political theory and as a theory of history, um, because it is rooted in materialism, its foundations, it's a rejection of all things religious at all. There is nothing outside of the material. And therefore, what are claims of religious authority? Well, they're made up efforts to control and to dominate people. That's what they are. They're part of the problem. And so we're going to inevitably see an active suppression of transcendent religious 
moral codes and systems. Um, if we move into the non-deterministic realm here, uh, so now man does have a free will, man does make real choices, uh, and those things should be exercised in pursuing some sort of happiness or pleasure. If, if I decide to define that on the basis of individual good, well, what's going to be the outcome of that? Well, that's not hard to imagine. If, if my personal happiness is, the, is, is not just the greatest good, but it's the purpose, really, it's the only way to live out the realities of materialism, then what are we going to begin to see on a cultural level if this has embraced, if an entire society embraces it? We're going to see widespread increasing sexual deviance, perversity. We're going to see very much a rebellion against authority. Authority is someone else's attempt to stop me from doing what I think is going to make me happiest. So the, the consequence is going to be a rebellion against authority, all forms of authority, or at least the ones that don't further my personal happiness, and certainly a self-centered living. After all, it's the entire purpose of my existence now. If we take it to the societal level, utilitarianism, well, now the marker of what is good becomes the consensus of the whole. Uh, one thing that that has no room for at all is tolerance of minority positions. A minority position in that way of thinking loses its value because the whole standard of what was good was what the most thought was the best for it. This is, by definition, an attack against viewpoints and differences of opinion that would challenge the status quo. And so there's a rejection of tolerance. There is a disrespect of conscience differences. If, I, if, if, if I'm struck with a conscience conviction but it does not appeal to the whole, there is no reason to value my conscience distinction there. Um, if you can see it, which we can't, pragmatism, skepticism. Um, as a society embraces it, what, what it's really embracing is relativism and laziness of thought. Because these things don't matter, so there is no, thank you, David. That helps a little bit. Do you see how that would tend toward a laziness in thought life? About the, because these are all attempts to answer the, the, the great questions, right? The deep questions of human existence. If it doesn't matter, then I'm going to get real busy with a lot of very surface level things. Rob? Well, lived out practically, it would, it would have to be. I, I think technically it would be a dualism, but as, as it lives out, it, it, it gets to the same place. It puts me on my own, needing to provide for myself. Well, to whatever extent that's true, that's a pretty terrifying notion. Right? And if, if what we've said so far is correct, that the Christian worldview is the only worldview that accurately reflects the way God has made reality, uh, the only worldview that leads to uh, consistent human flourishing and the, the, uh, the honoring of God in society, then that would be a very uh, a dangerous place for us to be if most of what represents that is on this page right now. Well, there's one thing that ties them all together and that winds up with this boxing up uh, thing that you're describing there, and that is that when, when we are left to ourselves to try to imagine uh, 
value systems, to try to imagine purposes that these things are here or what we should do with what we have. When we, when we step out on our own and try to make those judgment calls, uh, we inevitably, because we have limited perspective, we inevitably put boxes in, in these ways. And this is what, as we keep going in the series, is going to be so helpful. Is he's going to go on and, 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 and say, a Christian thinking from the point of view of Scripture as revelation from God is fundamentally not in any of these places at all. We're doing something altogether different because we have a completely different starting point than, than this. There is, there is no assumption of myself and my own mind as some authority to look around and judge. We know things. We only know things because God has told us what to think. He's told us what he's done and why. He's told us where there is any value. And if, I, if I, my starting point is to bow before him and to think his thoughts after him, then I'm going to have some coherence. If I don't do that, I'm going to just find an ism and uh, I'm going to live an inconsistent life. I'm not going to be, my, my, my worldview will not be able to match even my own experience of, of reality, of, of, of the human experience. And he's going, I mean, right now we're, we're building these we're explaining these other views and alternatives, and we're not yet getting to what does, what does Scripture say? What does a Christian worldview say in response to these things? And that's going to put the whole puzzle together, I think. Yeah, Roxanne? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's what I think we're going to see as we go forward. What ties all of these together is a settled decision from the beginning that I, I will throw off any, any, any uh, divine claim of authority on how I should think. So I, I'll pick a position that, that, that justifies and gives me the ability to rationalize my behavior or the way that I'm thinking. Um, but at the end of the day, it wasn't about a conviction about a certain truth. I'm pursuing autonomy. That's what I'm pursuing. And these become means to that end. I think it's one of the benefits of this presuppositional approach is the inconsistencies are are glaringly obvious. I mean, how many, uh, I think this 2-2 two, two is a, by way of percentage, I mean, I would just imagine that a tremendous amount of our society would define morality and value and good on that basis. And yet we would stand together and condemn Nazi Germany for doing what they had, had as a consensus, agreed was for their greatest good. We would feel an, a right to make that statement. Um, when you stand back and look at those inconsistencies, it's not hard at all to see in someone else. <laughs> um, there's, there's one other thing that I, I would want to mention as we're thinking about the effect at the societal level of these kind of things. If, if I'm right, I mean, I've put these up here because I, I see these, uh, and again, I mean, in, in just like... Uh, Roxanne and Dennis were saying, they compete with one another. These things don't agree. And yet there's so much of, there, there's so much of our society that is gripped by these sorts of uh, ways of thinking, fundamentally categorized here. And they're going to have all kinds of consequences to them, individually and societally. But if you look at, if you just step back and think about how do, uh, how does it affect a society if it begins to live on a materialistic assumption? Uh, I mentioned a book last week. Uh, it was when I read uh, that excerpt about the, the about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, 
What's the main, you remember that? Uh, well, he, he, he's dealing with worldviews and with the way that they lead progressively one to another. Uh, it's called the universe next door. And he makes, he, he makes a very compelling point and one that I think we see being lived out like crazy, and that is that the, the, there's, there's a necessary progression. If we, if we take as our starting point this concept of materialism, the physical world is all that there is. It has inevitable, inescapable conclusions that get to meaninglessness. In our, it's, kind of, it's what, what Art was, was mentioning. If that is true, I'm going to inevitably battle with this question of where do I find any val- real, lasting value in who I am, what I'm doing. I'm just this. I'm going to do some things today that will impact you, but in a few years I'm going to be dead and so will you. Uh, if there was any value, it will be gone very quickly, completely gone. Uh, and if that's your outcome and mine, then where was the value in what I was doing anyway? Um, these questions of freedom are, are inescapable. How can it be that I, that I can really see myself acting uh, in true freedom and not in just a freedom that I think I have in my mind? The lack of certainty that these things produce... Um, these things have led in history in a progression. They have produced the existentialism that we see today. He's been defining that word, and I think that more than any of the others defines where we are today. Uh, I have been created, and or, excuse me, I've come into being, and I have, uh, there is no one or no, nothing outside of me that, that has informed me about who I am. They, they, what they say is they say, existence precedes essence. Come on the scene, I exist, and I have, there's nothing essential about me except what I decide to put into that. That's an inevitable conclusion of materialism. There's no value outside of me. I've got to come up with my own value for my life. What's valuable about me? Um, I'll have to declare my own meaning, and, and it's a meaning for myself that I've made. Uh, that cannot satisfy us for long. And most importantly, as we mentioned, the inevitability of death uh, makes any of the efforts I take to try to find value, it, it makes them fall very short. Any of the meaning or value that I create for myself, if that's where it came from, it goes away when I die. Yeah, yeah. Well, those thoughts are going to push him more and more to a decision. Right? It, 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 if we persist in this, there is only one decision that can be made, and that is that there is no value to me. There's no, there's no reason for me. There's no reason for me to get out of bed in the morning. And, and it leads to nihilism. And it doesn't just do that by coincidence. It does it uh, in a way that is, that is rational. This is the rational progression. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embrace materialism for a time. I'm going to find comfort in its conclusions by thinking I can create meaning for myself. But after a while, I'll figure out it's just inevitable. That will not satisfy me for long. And eventually, I will surrender the notion that there is any hope. And I'll, I'll, I'll surrender the notion that there was ever any value in my life or in existence at all. Now, I, I was suggesting in the last slide that this is what we have embraced and this with it. <coughs> How is our society doing in the realm of hope? If it's true that that's what we've embraced, we'd expect to see certain things as a result. 
right? So what are we seeing? Well, I, January 6th, the New York Times had an article out about suicide. That it, suicide is now the second leading cause of death, uh, um, specifically among young people, 10 ages. Uh, no, not, that's the wrong one. What was it? I forget now, 17 to 34, something like that. Second leading cause of death, accidents, though the only thing that killed them faster. Accidents were number one, suicides number two. There is a reason for that. These things have consequences to them. Um, it said in that article that from 2007 to 2017, that 10-year period, suicides from those uh, it, between the ages of 10 and 24 rose by 56%. Those, those things are sad. They remind us of the duty that we have. But my point of bringing that up is this is where a video like this is actually helpful to us. We're not spinning our wheels philosophizing together on an ivory tower. Despa human despair comes from somewhere. And what Bonson is trying to make the point of, and I think we need to embrace it, is that those things come from the underlying assumptions about life and reality that we live on. And you're living around people. Uh, neighbors, friends of your kids and your grandkids, extended family, we're living around people who have bought a certain set of assumptions that lead to despair by necessity. And they don't even know what they're thinking oftentimes. But here we are getting a, ch a chance to realize <laughs> some of the assumptions that we can bring up, that we can point out. A video series like this is very helpful to us. It helps us to stop diagnosing the symptoms and start thinking in terms of the underlying causes of things like despair. Uh, what, what closing thought or comment would you want to throw in there? We're close to time. Ken? Yeah. Yeah, Ken, Ken's saying if, if abortion is the taking of a human life, where does that fit into uh, to this chart, for example? Where do we... We're constantly dealing with some pretty skewed statistics because we're leaving out the widest range of, of murder that, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, you see in those, in those methodologies, the value of what we're talking about. We live out of our worldview. Other sides of these things seem to understand that, and they're getting our kids, shaping their worldview, and then the job's done. Yeah, I think I see what you're saying. I, I would say there's, there's one really critical mistake that you're making, and that is taking small details or consequences of these and, and talking as if that sums up the position, when it doesn't at all. I mean, the, the, Sure. And we wouldn't want to be guilty of that, right? We wouldn't want to make the same mistake. So we would look at these things and, and want to be very clear in our own minds that it's easy to go through and say Christianity, the, the God's word categorically rejects monism. 
It categorically rejects it. It speaks of a creation outside of the person of God that is not God. Uh, it categorically rejects the, 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 the platonic dualism that's talking about here. It does affirm that there's more than, than the physical, but, it, but not in the ways that's doing that. Categorically, I mean, you would agree, the Bible rejects materialism, right? Is there a spirit realm? So materialism is rejected by Scripture, and all of the, the conclusions that they would draw based on that assumption, therefore, they're, they're drawing on false premises. But, the, but the, well, I mean, and this is where we're going in the future, and we're out of time, but what we're going to see in the weeks to come is that Christianity has an answer for all, has a, uh, all of these things, so far as I'm concerned, represent, and I think the Bible describes them, as demonic doctrines. And what do they do but take pieces of truth and twist them? We have the Word of God, and therefore we have the authentic, the real, and our task is to know it very well. Our task is to understand uh, not just what it says, but the position it has over us, right? We come to his word with a knee bent to the ground, ready to receive from him. Um, and we have to be in a, in a wise enough position where we can understand the distinctions, the very deep, fundamental distinctions between a Christian worldview and all of these things. So I would still say, even, even I, think I, I think I know where you're going with that, but I would still say that Categorically, the, the, the Christian worldview based upon Scripture is doing something fundamentally different than these in its conclusions. Yes, there are pieces of this that, that speak. Yes, you know, dualism. There's more than just the physical world. Um, but that's not what we're getting at when we're talking about these worldviews. Do you have time for me to just make one comment? Yes. It'll be quick. I'm going to count it off. Ten seconds. Yep. <laughs> okay. No. Oh, that's right. That's what this kind of study does, is it produces humility in us, and it, it allows us to not typecast and, and uh, um, um, straw man these other people that we know that are thinking in a different way. We need to really understand where they're coming from and not just assume. So it's good to do these sorts of studies. Um, thank you, guys. Great discussion. We are uh, we're dismissed. <laughs>